Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor. This is the FCCMA podcast produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. And each week we interview a city or county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government right here in the Sunshine State, all the way in from Charlotte County uh, Deputy County Administrator, Emily Lewis. Emily, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me today. All right. What's the difference between a deputy county administrator and an assistant county administrator? We just have to know. <laughs> so I always describe it as more wrinkles, but essentially we just have uh, kind of pick up the ball if the county administrator is out, um, decision-making authority, um, and I supervise a couple more departments than our assistants. So it's a little higher ranking in, in, the, in the hierarchy. And you have two interesting areas that I just can't wait to dive into. The first is a I guess there was a book several years ago about women getting involved in leadership positions called Lean In, and you guys run a Lean In program to promote women in leadership. And then also the repassage of a penny sales tax for local infrastructure, also uh, a vital, vital area. I want to I delve into that because for so many counties... You know, it's funny, right now we're dealing with a lot of federal money, we're probably pushing back some of this need, but so many counties need that money for roads, et cetera, et cetera, especially as each year the legislature meets, they come up with new and interesting ways to push the cost of running government downstream uh, and complete violation of home rule, I might add. <laughs> uh, so let's talk first about the lean-in program. D- describe it at 30,000 foot what it is. Uh, So our Lean In program, it really is just a group of women in our organization um, that get together and talk about both personal and professional goals. Kind of started um, as one of uh, the senior um, women executives in our organization. I had a lot of young, younger, um, younger females coming into the into the profession that were asking for formal mentoring, and I realized we didn't really have a program for that or an opportunity for that networking to occur within the organization. And we had a, a tremendous number of wonderful resources um, that that were available to these, to these young ladies. So um, I found a program called Lean In um, after reading the book. I, they, it's a nationwide, actually international program. And so we just kind of adapted it for our organization. So we meet virtually um, once a month. We bring in speakers from the outside or we highlight um, and other... this is just for women working for the county? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And they're, they're all in various stages of their careers. It might be early to, you know, mid-level careers or those of us that are later in our career that just want to help share some of the wisdom and experiences that we've had along our way. Um, our members ask and give us feedback on things that they'd like to talk about. And it can be anything from how do you manage your work-life balance to how do you Um, manage conflict with another employee in an office. It's really just a dialogue. So we, um, we have about 30 women who participate monthly. Pitch this program to me, pitch, pitch the idea. I'm another County. I'm, I'm having lunch with you and you say, yeah, we do this leaning program. Well, why should we do it? You should do it because it helps your, um, your women in your organization to learn and grow together um, to share experiences and to to feel like there is someone who has gone through the same thing or that can give them some professional advice. Um, you know, selfishly, I'm looking at how do we diversify our our leadership team in our county. Um, 
especially in a field that's very male dominated. Um, and so how do I develop the next generation? And that that's really what started it for me. Um, at the same time, FCCMA was kind of looking at, and ICMA to an extent, um, how to elevate women into, um, into leadership positions in local government. And so uh, for me, it was kind of how do I spot the next generation of talent coming up? Um, and how do I mentor and cultivate that, that feeling of inclusion in our organization? You know, there's study after study. It says women entering the workforce have higher education, did better in school, et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds to me like what you're doing is closing the gap between education, formal training, experience, and teaching and helping women learn how to navigate the workplace so they can become all that all that their talent allows, right? All of that, what what their training and education allows to them say, look, there's cultural impediments, barriers. Let's acknowledge them. Let's understand them, and let's figure out ways to to move through those those cultural impediments. And it sounds like that's what you guys are doing. Absolutely. And the other side of it is building confidence. You know, typically, um, if a position is posted and uh, uh, their male counterparts might not feel like they're qualified for it, nine times out of ten, they will still apply for it women tend to feel like they have to check off every box in order to be qualified. And so it's really about just saying, hey, go for it. You know, sometimes we do the things that are scary because that's where you grow the most. Well, it's, it's a typical, it's a joke. I remember reading a long time ago, if you ask 50 men, how does a cell phone work? You'll get an answer 50 times, uh, whether they know it or not, right? If you ask 50 women, you're more likely to get, you know, I really don't know. Uh, and that goes to this, uh, uh, men tend to have more confidence. Uh, oh, I, I meet half the criteria, therefore I'm qualified. A woman looks at the same job description and says, I only meet half the criteria, therefore I'm not qualified. And I guess what you're saying is teaching and learning and understanding that, you know, get a little outside of your comfort zone. It's okay to be outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Um, anything else about the lean in program you'd like to share with us? Let us know, you know, why it's, this is, have you had benefits that you've, you've seen, you've seen women who otherwise would not have grown in your organization that have become great leaders as a result of it? Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the benefits have been intangible. We've definitely seen the promotions and, um, and those success stories. But for me, the biggest success story that I, that came out of it for me was that we had, um, an individual who, after meeting our administrators, meeting some of our women directors, um, said, you know, you guys are just like us. You have the same type of insecurities and the same types of issues that you're dealing with. Um, and so it, it makes us more personal to them. Um, and it makes them more invested in this organization, knowing that we're kind of all the same. Well, what I like about that, and I think a lot of people would like about it, it's not quota setting. It's not saying, okay, the next person we hire for this uh, assistant county administrator position or this division director or whatever that is, is going to be a woman. What you're saying is, let us help train the women in our organization, educate them, uh, uh, make them aware of cultural uh, impediments, and help them grow so that they apply for the job and compete on even footing. Absolutely. You know, and we're a mid-sized county, so if I'm training someone to go to another city, county, I'm I'm okay with that too. It's all about them sharpening their skills and sharpening uh, their confidence in themselves. That's 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 what a good program, what a good idea, uh, and I'm glad you guys are taking the leadership on that. We're we're getting a lot of that among the the interviews. Uh, a lot of folks saying. 
you know, we're, we're doing everything we can to push from the bottom up in terms of uh, uh, diversity, uh, inclusion, equity, uh, all of those uh, items to help people grow and, and, and have a diversified leadership team. Uh, gosh, just on time, it's 2021. Yeah. Um, and while, while Lean In is really kind of focused on women's issues, you know, we do have, you know, this work, work-life balances and, you know, balancing motherhood and your career. Um, we do talk about all those things. It is still inclusive. We do have men that participate um, and they're welcome. You know, it's just as important that that they have the same network and the same support system. Our local paper has a photographic essay of the new Senate uh, leader who was just elected in the Senate, Senator Book, and her raising her children literally in the Capitol while she's working, uh, trying to strike a work-life balance that way, which is, it's really kind of neat. The, the photos are fantastic and it's a kind of a cool journey, but all of that seems to penetrate uh, so many more aspects of our professional careers these days. She has one of the coolest office with the Capitol Nursery. Yeah, well, this, there's a great picture of a squished uh, croissant on the floor. It's like, oh, just like home. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Emily, you guys have recently engaged in something that's near and dear to my heart and heart of my firm. We've done a number of local sales tax, uh, millage, uh, increased referenda for local government. Uh, sometimes it's a half penny, sometimes it's a full, sometimes it's a renewal, sometimes it's a brand new tax. Charlotte County overwhelmingly passed a uh, penny tax for local infrastructure needs. Tell us a little bit about how that came about, what your guys' journey was, and how you were so successful in getting going from past referenda where you barely crested over 50% to this time more than two-thirds of the voters said yes to this uh, local option sales tax. Well, sure. So I think I said earlier that, you know, the things that scare you help you grow the most. And this is certainly one of those tasks that scared the heck out of me. Um, I had just been promoted to assistant county administrator in 2019, um, early not, 2019. Not yet deputy. Not yet deputy. <laughs> early, early 2019. And then uh, right after I was promoted, my county administrator retired. And then just a month or two later, our deputy county administrator uh, retired. So I was handed this assignment um, to lead both our, our citizen um, focus group that that developed the projects and also the educational campaign um, to make our community aware of the sales tax program. And so um, I had a, benefited from having, you know, great um a great playbook in the past. This is a was not a new tax for us. It was a um, sales tax that had been in place since uh, 1994. Um, however, we did have kind of a rocky road in the past in terms of getting it passed. And so, you know, while I had a good playbook, I didn't have a playbook that took into account COVID, and that kind of changed the script for us yeah. um, on all accounts um, and how we handled our citizen focus group and also our educational campaign. And I mean, you don't have homeowners associations meeting in person. You don't have chambers of commerce meeting in person. You don't have Kiwanis clubs meeting in per person. You've got to do this all remote now. Exactly. And it really took us from being, um, you know, in front of our community to a grassroots effort to, to pass this, um, and very thankful with the results, but it was not an easy feat. Um, and we had to get very creative with how we did it. 
Well, yeah. backing up for a second, because I've, I've been a great, a long time observer of these, and I find the ones that are most successful, and this is, the, uh, to me, a critical takeaway. If you're going to pass, especially a new one, it pays dividends, big, giant, huge dividends to build up front, which is get community buy-in, get community feedback, see what it is they want to see improved in the community, and spend a lot of time, energy, and effort on the front end finding out what it is the community's needs are. Um, I'm reminded of one that one of the things that the, the community leaders wanted was some of that money to go to a performing arts center. Mm-hmm. After these types of focus groups and community outreach, they're like, yeah, we like the roads. We like the improvement to the holding ponds. We like the improvements to our parks. We like money for economic development. But a performing arts center, we don't want that. And it's those one big thing that tends to kill these things. By the way, did you guys have any of those that you thought the public might like and then realized we got to take that out? Uh, so we we have in the past. In this one, we had um, maybe some stinkers that made it through the citizen review process that the commissioners knew were not good investments. Um, and so we had a couple of those we had to work through, um, but we really didn't have a stinker in this one. We experienced that in 19, um, well, actually in 2014, where they tried to tack on a justice center expansion um, to our sales tax and and also lengthen the amount of time that we were passing it for. And it just, the polling went so far below passage that it, we had to drop it. Oh, yeah. Anytime you have new government buildings, the public's like, wait a second, what? Mm-hmm. No, I want better roads. Yeah. I don't want to see algae and holding ponds. I want better parks for my kids. Uh, better uh, accoutrement for the city hall? No, 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 no. <laughs> I think, yes, yes, definitely. Um, I think the one thing that our uh, Board of County Commissioners um, and our our administration did in guiding them through this process is we spent a lot of time talking about what are the future needs of our community? What does our 20-year capital needs assessment look like? Um, what are those critical facilities or new facilities we need to bring online to to be able to provide the exceptional service that we do for our community. And, you know, any of these projects, any of these initiatives, it's all about balance, right? So you want a good quality of life mix. You want good public services or public safety type of facilities. And, you know, um, water quality certainly was a, a new game changer for us in this um, in this sales tax. Uh, it's the first time we've been able to successfully get water quality included into uh, a sales tax referendum. How, how did you do that? What did you just, were you generic about water quality or did you have specific water quality projects? We had specific water quality projects. However, we were pretty general in how we um, educated the community on them. So for Charlotte County, the Harbor is our lifeline. Um, the Peace, Mayaka um, and Lemon Bay, those are the Lemon Bay Estuary. That is really what drives a lot of commerce in our area. It's what drives our tourism um, it's a six billion dollar industry for us in terms of fishing and and our and our aquaculture. So water quality is important to everyone who lives in Charlotte County. Not just for recreation, but for economics. Correct. However, not everyone lives in an area of Charlotte County. It's very diverse. We have both rural and urban areas mm-hmm. in our community. So not everyone lives in a, a part of the county that benefits from a sewer expansion project. However, everyone. Did you use the S word? We actually did use the S word um, very strategically. Um, we we looked at areas where we could reduce nutrient loading to the harbor, where we could increase um, water quality 
for everyone who uses it. So we really took the approach that water quality, water quality is important to everyone because no one wants to go out their front door and smell red, red tide or, you know, algae blooms in, in our community. Um, and, and removing nutrients is really what, what changes and improves that water quality in our community. So, so another aspect of this, and I, I think we need to touch on it. A lot of people say, well, as a county, we can't. As a county, we can't. And one of the we can'ts is we can't um, advocate. Now, the law says, and I'm not going to practice law, but the, is my understanding of the law is that you can't spend money to say vote yes. But what you can spend money on, you should, I think, educate the public on is if this is passes, these will be the projects and this will be the process by which we are going to evaluate those projects on a future going basis. And by identifying those things, I think the public becomes more comfortable that this money can only and will only be spent, you know, 50% on roads, 10% on parks, 10% on water quality, 10% on economic development, whatever that distribution is. And the what's the oversight process to make sure every dollar is spent as it's supposed to be. And, and so your county did go out and share with the community aggressively what the money would be used for. Oh, we absolutely did. Um, we also, while the law says you, you can't advocate, it doesn't say you can't have partnerships who will advocate on your behalf. Right. And so we also spent some time forming those. Um, so on the educational campaign, um, like I said before, we had a great playbook for how to do this. What we didn't have is a playbook for how to do this when no one is meeting in person. Um, So we had to get very creative. And, you know, we've we were very intentional with the project mix that ended up on the sales tax um, referendum ballot. Um, And so we took advantage of of ways to to utilize what matters most to people to get the message out. So when well, our, give me an example. You said you did, you were innovative. Give me an example. You you said this is what we're going to do because of this. How how did that work? What was what was something innovative that you did? So our library system. Uh, we we happen to be a part of the state that is a little uh, older in population. Um, heavy users of our library system. Um, we had a library project in 2014 that built a new beautiful library in the city of Punta Gorda, um, and so. Um, when COVID hit and we stopped providing library services in our physical buildings, we started a drive-up service. And it was a huge hit with our public. I mean, we actually saw more numbers coming through the drive-up service than we did those actually entering the facility. And so we used that as an opportunity to capitalize and get the world out. And so instead of printing flyers for homeowners associations meeting, I printed bookmarks. Um, that highlighted everything that the sales tax had done in the past to support the library system and what it what was in this upcoming sales tax to, again, strengthen our library system or add to our library system. Oh, excellent. Excellent. By the way, uh, on that thing with the library, do you guys see yourselves going back? Because I've heard talk to a number of counties that are like, you know, people really like this drive through concept. Uh, do you guys see yourself going back? Um, I, I think we... We will go back, but we will keep those um, those improvements that we found in, during COVID, those lessons that we've learned. So I don't think our, our drive-up service will go away. Um, those numbers continue to increase. What we are 
are looking at now as ways to innovate even that. Um, we're looking at how do we provide hotspots as a checkout service so people who are, are now at home instead of out in public have internet connectivity and can use some of our electronic resources. Um, so I think I think we'll see a hybrid. Um, I don't ever see us shutting down libraries. I mean, it's a gathering place and at some point people right. will gather again. But I see these these conveniences that our, our residents have become accustomed to um, will continue to keep those in place and, and find ways to improve upon even that service. I'm so hoping you were going to, I was so hoping you were going to tell me you're going to have drone delivery of books, <laughs> you know, down the street with a pizza, with a pizza and a book by drone. We uh, have an airport here. So that, that kind of hinders a- us a little bit in the no fly zone. <laughs> but, you know, I like the way you think. You never know what the future holds. I tell you, I'm not a, I'm not a, a pizza delivery person, but uh, the day they come to drone delivery of pizzas, I'm going to order a pizza just so I can <laughs> see a drone bring me a pizza. The, so, uh, the, so the lesson learned from the sales tax is a lot of preparation up front and then a lot of education once you put it on the ballot. And you said something about polling. So, so not only the people who show up at the hearings and the meetings, but reaching out to the public at, at large and saying, what do you like? What do you don't like? Because we don't want to extend this tax for things you don't want, whether it's a performing arts center in other counties. It has been. And the reason I was so focused on the sewer is, as you know, Septic to sewer conversion can be a really hot button issue. If you don't live there, why am I tax dollars paying for their septic sewer? If I do live there, hey, I'm happy with my septic tank. Don't force me to hook up to a sewer. It, it can be a real hot spot for a, a county. And, can, and many referenda are sitting on the sidelines simply because uh, that became the focal point of the issue. And you guys sound like you managed it well. Yeah, I think, again, it's all about balance. You know, when I said earlier, we're a uh, more elderly community, a lot of what I hear, I didn't hear a lot of consternation about subject to sewer. What I did hear was a lot of consternation about schools because we did have a school security measure um, as a part of our sales tax referendum. And a lot of our residents who have already raised their children in in other communities don't understand why they have to pay school taxes here too. And so that ironically was the bigger issue that we had to educate on. Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. I mean, we've done a number of school referenda and public asks, why should I have to pay for this? I'm like, well, do you want kids off the streets and in school? Do you want them in the streets uh, getting in trouble? So we want them in school. Okay. And we were coming coming off of just having passed a half a mil for our schools um, two years before. So it's kind of a double whammy. No, and, and, and that's the challenge of, of in being in local government as the state, especially for schools, changes the required local effort formula, forcing uh, local communities to pick up more of the tab on schools, no more PICO dollars, which is the capital outlay money to build schools coming from the state. Uh, a lot of real challenges locally. And you say, well, we're going to raise this money locally. But the good news is every dollar raised from these local millage rate increases, uh, half penny taxes, every dollar stays right there in that community. You don't send it off to DC. You don't send it to Tallahassee and hope to give you some of it back. You get to keep every dollar and see how it's going to be spent. And for us, it, it captures revenue from our visitors here, which is I mean, tourism is, you know, we're one of the snowbird capitals of Florida. So, um, you know, being able to capture revenue from from those who visit us as well, I mean, it was a key seller for for, the, for our sales tax. The ending of our podcast usually is something cool about your community, but I want to jump in. I'm going to ask you what you feel is cool. You said the a, a magical word to me, Mayaka. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is 
Charlotte County is, is it Manatee County? Is it Charlotte County where Mayaka State Park is? It's in Charlotte. Well, it's partly okay. in Charlotte and partly in Sarasota. So for those who've never been uh, and you're listening, uh, not if you're driving and listening, but if you're listening, Google Mayaka and alligators. You've <laughs> never seen anything like it. <laughs> the Mayaka um, River State Park is a gym. It is a beautiful place. They have raised platforms you can hike. It's just, it's very unusual and it's well worth a visit. The density of extremely large alligators mm-hmm. is shocking. You literally have eight, nine, 10 foot alligators laying. They're touching each other for hundreds of yards. It yes. is quite a sight when you look up and you come uh, over a bridge and you look down the river and you see 75 massive alligators sitting on the bank. It's really like nothing I've ever seen. I've only ever seen one other place that's like that, and that's Payne's Prairie. But, oh really? Yes. I drive through Payne's Prairie all the time on my way to South Florida. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to try to bike it one day. <laughs> you ever can. It is it's very eerie when you come across uh, you know, one of the areas where the gators are congregated, and especially during mating, se- mating season when they're calling. It is just you hear what sounds like the jungle. Um, it's it's a really cool experience. It really I, I was down in Mayaka and, and we bicycled around uh, across the dikes, across the bridges. And it is astonishing. Like, what, what do they eat? How many gators there are? The thing I didn't <laughs> understand, honestly, was people kayaking in that river. And I thought, you know, I know they're relatively safe and they're not going to attack you and all that stuff. But an accident <laughs> will yep. go bad quickly. Um, so tell me what your thoughts are about what's what's interesting and cool about Charlotte. That people may not know that would make them go, hey, I want to go there. Well, Charlotte County, you know, I I used to live in Sarasota and drive over to the East Coast all the time. And I would cross this this bridge called the, you know, this bridge over the Peace River. And I always thought, hey, that's a cool name for a river. Um, but it really is. It's it's like paradise. I mean, it is beautiful here. We have the harbor, which is uh, more brackish in nature. It's where the Peace River and, and the Atlantic Ocean kind of or the Gulf of Mexico kind of come together. Um the ecotourism here, you can go to the beach or you can be in, you know, a swamp. It's, it's really very diverse, um, ecologically. Um, the other really cool thing is we've got the first solar city developing in Charlotte County, um, in Babcock Ranch. And so from a, a local government geek like me, it's really cool to see a city developing from the ground up, um, and what that looks like. And especially one that's sustainable, that has cutting edge technology that's using um, automated um, vehicles. And it's, it's just really, it's really cool to see. Oh, that is, that is currently. So it's a leading edge technology. Cause you know, when you think of Charlotte and I've been in Florida for 30, 40 years, you don't think you think of it as just a rural uh, community kind of in between Naples, Fort Myers, and the Tampa Bay region. But yeah, you're hearing between Mayaka State Park, Tarpon Capital, mm-hmm. uh, great fishing, great uh, outdoor recreation. It's really becoming kind of a, a found gem, isn't it? It is. Um, we have been discovered. Coincidentally, today, uh, one of the fastest growing cities in the state. It is. Absolutely. Um, and today is our 100th birthday. So we are celebrating our centennial today, which we're very excited about. You guys don't look a day over 99. <laughs> Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. This has been very informative. Uh, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. This is Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA podcast, a service produced by and for 
the Florida City and County Management Association. Thank you for being with us.